fine design that sets it apart from the lookalike. Business is built on data, facts, and figures. It's also made up of some of the most fascinating stories the world has known. What makes business tick? What are the stories we can find in their failures and victories? Get ready to find out what some of today's leaders were thinking right now on Business Disrupted. Here is your host, Ted Gavin. Welcome to Business Disrupted. Today we explore an industry many don't talk about, fewer are likely to admit patronizing, yet it has been at the forefront of the development of consumer technology for decades, and it generates no shortage of opinions, pro and con equally polarized. And what technology makes possible, technology also disrupts. Today we talk about an adult entertainment, porn, for the more casually oriented. And adult entertainment is big business. Pornhub, presently the largest porn site on the internet, boasts over 92 million visitors per day. In 2017, adult video star Riley Reid was bigger on Pornhub with more than half a billion views than Miley Cyrus was on YouTube. To help us unwind the complexities of the adult entertainment business, our guest today is Lux Alptrom, a writer whose commentary on sexuality, feminism, adult entertainment, and technology has appeared in media from the New York Times to Hustler to Cosmopolitan. Lux was the proprietor and editor-in-chief of Fleshbot, the sex-oriented blog founded by Gawker. She's the host of season two of the Tabloid Podcast, a joint production of Luminary and New York Magazine, which uses the Pamela Anderson and Tommy Lee sex tape as a launching point for a compelling exploration of cultural change. And she is the author of Faking It, The Lies Women Tell About Sex and the Truths They Reveal, published in 2018 by Seal Press. Before we get started, I have to take a moment to talk about this book. To call it a must-read is to minimize what this book is. It should be required reading. Women can find validation and context for the interactions they have experienced their entire lives. Men will learn things about themselves and what they've been taught, either overtly or by passively accepting societal norms that they've never understood or even considered. Parents can, and I think should, use this book to inform themselves on preparing their children, male, female, gender-fluid, or non-binary, to lead healthy and considerate, sexually fulfilling lives. And you will come away from the book knowing more about ways in which our society is profoundly messed up. And the only way to fix it is to know how it's broken. Lux Albtraum, welcome to the show. That is quite an endorsement. Thank you so much. Well, you know, as a, as a turnaround and restructuring advisor, I'm probably not comment, not qualified to, t- to consider the, the sociological implications. But as a, as a parent and father of, uh, of adult women, oh boy, was it an informative read. I, you know, I love to hear that. And um, thank you. Thank you for reading it. And thank you for just endorsing it. So lovely. Well, thank you for, uh, for being here. So back to adult entertainment. Let, let's get the vernacular out of the way. What is the proper term to use? I mean, pornography sounds judgy. What, what, what is the preferred descriptor? So it depends on what you're talking about. I mean, most people who are making, let's say, sexual media will use the term pornography. I don't personally consider pornography to be judgy. Uh, I think it's an accurate term, depending on what you're talking about. But, you know, more broadly, if you want to talk about like, if you say like the porn industry, I mean, it kind of depends on how you say it. Some people say the porn industry and it does sound dismissive. Um, or it sounds, as you said, judgmental. Uh, I think in that case, one might say like you could use the adult industry or the sex industry. When I hear adult industry, I mostly think about sex, sexual entertainment media. So porn, mm-hmm. uh, the sex industry, I think is a little bit more broad and can include like sex toys, um, can include 
strip clubs can include other forms of uh, sexual content or services. Um, but yeah, I usually will say sometimes it depends on it depends on how narrow I want to go. Um, I don't have a problem calling it porn. I don't think it's inherently offensive or anything. Um, but I think sometimes we can say the adult industry to sound a little more reputable. <laughs> okay. Well, porn or the adult industry, it is. It is. How has that as a consumer product evolved over the years into its current form? So, I mean, it depends on how many years you want to go back. There's always been some form of sexual media, whether it's what we would call porn or not, kind of depends on who is looking at it. But certainly, you know, by the time you had the invention of film and the invention of photography, the invention of movies, you had people who were using photography and movies to uh, record people having sex. Like that's always been a part of it. Recording nudity, recording people having sex. Like even a hundred years ago, there were like silent stag films. Um, so that is also very different from what we have now, of course. Uh, like a short silent clip of people having sex is very, very different from what we now have where it's often uh, live streamed, interactive, uh, on demand content where not even just you're watching it as it's happening, but you can interact and sometimes even make requests. Um, so how did we get from there to here? I mean, first, you know, there's a lot that there's a lot that happened. So I will give you like the Cliff Notes version. Um, first, we have on a couple different fronts. One, we have the liberalization of uh, of the law, which is not it's not linear. It's come and gone um, depending on who is in power. You see a government that is more or less hostile to adult media. Um, I won't get into the specifics of all the different laws, but just suffice it to say, now we are certainly in a climate that is more friendly to adult media and the distribution of media than it was 100 years ago, but some would argue it is significantly less friendly than it was 20 years ago. So it, it comes in waves depending on who is in power. That's a major thing because if porn is illegal, only criminals are going to make it like fundamentally, right. like fundamentally uh, the more, the easier it is to make porn from a legal perspective, the more people you're going to see making porn. Now there's also the technology aspect, which is the part that I am personally the most fascinated by. And the technology aspect um, is really interesting on both the consumer and the producer level. Cause you kind of have these parallel trends of me of technology, making it so that media is, easier to make. So, you know, the cost of cameras goes down, cameras become more portable, become more accessible. And you have media itself, in part because it's now cheaper to produce, becoming more private and easier to access. So the thing I always think about um, on the producer end is it's like, okay, in the 80s, you have the explosion of the VHS home recorder, right? right? So now it's very, you don't have to do actual film. You can use a VHS tape. It's very easy uh, for a lot more people to buy a VHS cam and suddenly make, suddenly call themselves directors and start filming porn. So you start seeing the explosion of a VHS home market. Um, likewise, you see a similar explosion when you have the internet, because now you can be a producer from your own home. You don't have to worry about who's going to distribute my physical media, what stores are going to carry it. You can just upload it to the internet and 
you can be a pornographer from wherever you want to be. Uh, then, so that's like, you know, that's in the 90s when we start seeing that. What we see now is not only are, you know, everybody has a camera on their phone, but also the infrastructure that you might have had to build for yourself, like building your own website, dealing with payment processors. You now have uh, sites like Pornhub, sites like OnlyFans that are providing all of that. So it's kind of this more drag and drop thing. All you have to do is shoot the content and you upload it and somebody else is dealing with all the other stuff that in an earlier era, you would have had to deal with yourself. So on the producer end, all of that means it's a lot easier for more people to become pornographers, become porn models, to start making porn. Um, and therefore we do see, and we have seen what feels like an explosion in the number of people who are creative. Certainly if you count like people, anyone who has an OnlyFans as a porn performer, we're seeing a huge explosion of the number of people who are making uh who are making pornographic content and people, many of whom would not have made pornographic content if the circumstances were the way they were 20 years ago, the way they were a hundred years ago, just again, because of like ease of access um, and just the amount of friction there is between you creating content and that content being viewed by other people. So right. that's the producer end. consumer end. Also really fascinating to me. Uh, like I said, you know, you had, stag films in the 1920s. I'm not an expert on 1920s media, but I have to assume it was relatively difficult or you had to be relatively rich in order to be a person who was going to have access to that kind of media. Um, when you get to say the 1970s, you now have like the stereotypical porn theaters. So you can go see a porn movie, but you have to go to a theater where there are all these other people, which as you might imagine is a deterrent for quite a number of people. Yeah. Then by the eighties, you start seeing, like I said, VHS. And so instead of having to go to a theater and be around people for the entire experience, now all you have to do is go to your local video store Store, uh, assuming it's not like a blockbuster or other adult unfriendly one, uh, go to the triple X section, pick up a video. Now your point of contact is maybe somebody's going to see you at the video store. Maybe the cashier is going to see what you rent. So that's like your point of shame. But once you get through that experience, now suddenly you're at home, you're consuming this in the privacy of your home. Nobody really needs to know except that cashier. Fast forward to the internet. Now suddenly you have taken away even that barrier and the only people who need to know about what porn you're consuming are you your computer and your credit card and then from there you know you see the explosion of pirated and free content which then means you don't even have the friction of like do i want this to show up on my credit card statement uh when you have the explosion of smartphones now you can watch porn anywhere you can watch porn more easily you don't have to like sit at your office computer you can take it to your bedroom and just watch on your phone. And so, you know, again, on both sides, we see technologically and legally um, a reduction of friction. And that, I mean, people, people want to consume porn. People either want to make porn or they see making porn as the best in quotes, way for them to make money. Um, and so when there are fewer barriers, you see production and consumption both go up. One thing we should touch on is as these technological developments happened, both on the consumer side and the producer side, in many ways, porn was leading the techn technological advancements. Um, the reason why VHS won over beta is because porn 
picked VHS as as one of the mechanisms. The same for Blu-ray versus DivX. It, so I've it, been told that's apocryphal. So I, I don't, I'm not sure how true these things are. Like I've yeah. been told, like, because I wanted to quote that once in a piece for The Verge, and they were like, that's actually not true. There were other reasons why VHS went out over beta. It was kind of like... Well, the pricing, the price, yeah. reason, the price was a, a big reason. Yeah, I think. I mean, I think it's complicated because porn is often porn has historically been an early adopter, and so. The, but there is this like, well, did porn did the win, did the winning media win because of porn, or did porn just kind of see where the winds were blowing and hop on the winning media for other reasons? I don't know. I just, I just never want to like fully state like porn yeah. did this, but I do think it's true that porn has been an early adopter of technology in some cases. Um, one of the reasons why that was in some cases was you may be familiar with this massive um, internet or massive technology trade show, the consumer electronics show CES. And upstairs um, is a very different conference. Not anymore. Not anymore. But originally like 20 some, 30 some years ago, it was CES and CES had a subsection that was CES adult, mm-hmm. which was an adult industry trade show that then spun off to be the adult entertainment expo, which is the show that you're talking about, which uh, for many years, CES and AEE were at the exact same time. So you would go to, yeah, if you were in the adult industry, you were in Vegas in the same hotel with all of these tech people at the same time. So you, it was easy for you to get access and see what was going on. Um, then those shows split um, in part because due to piracy, due to a lot of changing um realities for the porn industry about a decade ago you started to see um profits plummet and so it became less cost effective to do this big show at the sands expo center during ces weekend and so it ended up moving to the hard rock hotel on a different weekend but you know there was originally this close tie um but i I will say though so it's like one of the other reasons why i get a little skeptical when people are like oh porn whatever porn does people totally jump on was during the era when I was most closely covering the adult industry, it was like 2008 to 2014. And you were seeing, again, due to piracy, the decline of the industry. Um, a lot of these big studios were shuttering, were going out of business. People were shooting a lot less uh, because the reality was fewer and fewer people were paying for porn because you could go to Pornhub or a torrent site or whatever and download this content for free because somebody had stolen it and uploaded it. And so fewer people felt it was necessary uh, to pay. And during that era, you saw porn trying to jump onto all of these different like tech, um, just tech innovations. Like it was like, oh, we're going to do 3D porn. Oh, we're going to do 4K porn. And it was this idea of like, we're going to do this tech and it's going to get people to pay for porn again. And it never did. And I, I mean, I think for a lot of people, it's like 4k porn that you pay for is not better than like lower definition porn. That's free. Um, and so, so it's complicated. Like this idea that like they used to say that, that the sex industry and porn are recession proof. Like I heard that a lot in 2008 and I was like, well, no, Absolutely not, because we're now at a time when people don't want to pay. People have now figured out a way to get porn for free, so they're not going to keep paying for it. Right. And it wasn't recession-proof at all. Well, and, and that that raises an interesting question. Is it that people don't want to pay because of the recession, or is it because there is just so much content available that they don't have to pay for it that they can make a choice? 
Oh, it's it's definitely the latter. Right. Um, I mean, because going back to what I said about about friction, right? Um, there's still a lot of shame around the consumption of adult media. And I think for a lot of people, if there's any kind of any kind of thing that makes them think about what they're doing, they might hesitate and then not do it. And again, this is, I don't think there's anything to be ashamed of, but a lot of people have shame around sexuality, around adult media, around wanting to consume adult media. And so for them, like any kind of friction might prevent them from consuming the content. And so mm-hmm. for a lot of people, I think having to pull out your credit card, having to type in the number, that's a friction point. Um, and it, you know, you think about it and you're like, ah, I don't know if I really want to do this. But if you just have to click and you instantly get the content and nobody is asking you for your credit card and it's free, that's much more appealing because you, yeah, you just get access to the content without ever really having this moment of thinking about it. Like, I think there's this impression that people will do anything for porn. And I don't think that that's true. I think that a lot of, there are people who certainly will, but there's a lot of people who won't and who will only consume porn once as many barriers as possible fall away. I think like it's not a coincidence that we have seen an increase in women consuming porn as porn consumption has become more private, has become more affordable, uh, has become something that, yeah, nobody has to know what you're doing. We're talking about the adult entertainment industry with writer Lux Alptram. If you have questions, tweet them to us at B-I-Z Disrupted or email them to comments at disrupted.business. So you mentioned that there's there, there are people who will do anything for porn. There are also people who will do anything for Taylor Swift tickets or John yes. Mayer tickets or Rolling Stones tickets. So it's 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 really just a matter of what are you willing to do for the the entertainment of your choice? Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I think a lot of this idea that like, oh, porn is so uh, so desirable that people are so impassioned by it really comes out of the fact that we put so many barriers around it and people still want it. Um, I think, you know, we live in a society that's tried to shame people out of um, expressing healthy sexuality, tried to shame people out of both producing and consuming sexual media. And so the fact that people still want it, uh, which it's only natural to want it, I would say, like makes people think that it's like so much more desirable than like Taylor Swift or whatever. And I, I don't think that's the case. I think for a lot of people, it's probably equally desirable. And it's just a question of who is willing to put in the work. And and for most people, you know, there's a limited amount of work and effort that they really want to put in to get porn. Let's talk about the industry itself. It, it, it moved at some point uh, around the time it, it shifted from... Uh, peep shows in theaters to video. It moved from New York to Los Angeles as as its locus. And in LA or in the San Fernando Valley, they found cheap rent, easy access office space, and a lot of people who knew how to operate film equipment who were looking for work. And so there's, so- a, there's a key reason why that happened, even beyond everything that you've mentioned, which is that in 1988, there was a Supreme, there was, I think it was California Supreme Court case. Yes. Freeman versus California. That was... Uh, This court case, I forget all the details, but the goal was to outlaw porn and actually it backfired. And so in the late 80s, uh, California basically said, "Okay, pornography is legally distinct from prostitution or full service sex work. And therefore, 
it's free speech. And in the state of California, it is legal to produce here. And that's a huge reason why a lot of people just went to California because, you know, they busted in New York and they're like, well, at least uh, we have one less thing to worry about. In addition to it being right near a ready source of film talent. Right. And, and coincidentally, I believe the only other state in the nation that has had a Supreme Court, a state Supreme Court ruling like California's is New Hampshire, which could not have less in common with California than that. That was about 13 years ago. Um, And, you know, in the late aughts, early 20 teens, um, there was an attempt to make California and particularly Los Angeles more hostile to pornography. Um, Basically, um, I don't want to go into all the details, but there was a lot of push to mandate condoms on set and mandate Mm -hmm. all kinds of safety equipment on set, which maybe sounds good in theory, but when you actually understand how the industry works and what um, shooting a scene entails, it's just not really feasible. And there were safety mechanisms through like um, rigorous testing and frequent testing that uh, performers all felt very comfortable with. So a lot of porn performers felt this was not actually uh, making them safer. It was actually making them less safe. Um, So in that moment, there was at least one studio that actually maybe two, there were some studios that relocated to New Hampshire in that moment where they were like, well, California doesn't want us. And so we're out. And they also saw, some studios relocate to Vegas where like, I don't think in Nevada it's complicated because in Nevada, I don't think porn is technically legal, but in Vegas they were like, we don't really care. It's fine. We welcome it. So sometimes it's about local enforcement as well. Right. And, and so as these, as the industry moved prior to 2012 yeah. and measure B and, and, and yeah. the things that, that the communities did to, to try and undo what the Supreme court did, a, a studio system built up. You know, there, there were there were major producers. There were minor producers. How did that work? So it worked um, a lot like the way the classic Hollywood studio system worked, where you'd have companies like Vivid and Adam and Eve and Digital Playground, who would they would work with many different stars, of course, but they would also have in-house contract stars who were exclusively contracted to work with that company um, and kind of built up the brand. So Vivid had the Vivid Girls, which were like a big deal, um, where you had like Janine and Jenna Jameson and all of these women who Vivid was like, you're going to exclusively work for us. We're going to build you up as a star. We're going to get you some mainstream attention and success. And that was the model for probably about 20 years, um, the contract star model started to fall apart when the studio system started to fall apart, which happened, as I was kind of referencing earlier, because of piracy. Because as soon as studios, um, as soon as studios revenue started to fall, the contract star model became less and less cost effective and made a lot less sense. Um, there might be, I, ha- I have not kept close tabs on this, but Pornhub might do something kind of like um, contract stars where they have like, like I know Asa Akira has a whole deal where she reps Pornhub, but it's not really the same as it was 
Um, but it's funny because when that system was collapsing, to me, it felt like this like grandiose old establishment system that was suddenly under assault. But when I think about it, it was really only around for maybe 25 years. It was not a very old um, system. Like Vivid was founded in the mid 80s and went basically went out of business about 30 years later. It wasn't around for that long. Um, but it still, in a lot of ways, feels like like this massive company that, I mean, it was a massive company that really defined what porn was for a lot of people. It just happened to be a relatively brief time span. Nina Hartley, the, the adult film icon, uh, described how around the turn of the century when, when studio porn was, was at its, its heyday, um, you know, they, most of the companies, most of the majors were only worth what she characterized as the lunch budget of an Avengers movie or about $5 million. And we don't really know much more than that about the economics of a, a major porn house, do we? No, I mean, that's one of the things that's so funny to me is you'll see um, various um, various newspaper stories, whatever, will be like, porn is a $15 billion industry. And porn is, I saw one that I think was like, porn is a $92 billion industry. And I started like clicking the links to see what people were citing. And it was like, everybody was just citing someone else who had cited it. And then finally I got to like the original source. And it was just somebody like making this estimate that was like, well, I know that Pornhub gets this many page views and I think ad impressions are this much. So therefore it must be worth this much. And it was like, completely not rooted in any reality because like there's no guarantee that that their um, estimate of how much the people were paying for ads was correct or even that every page was being sold um, but you know the thing is there's all this wild speculation and the reason there is able to be all this wild speculation is because pretty much all companies that are adult industry or sex industry are private companies so there's no um, there's no publication of of their data, of their sales data, of their revenue, any of that. So it's really just open to anybody's guess. And there's a lot of wild speculation. Um, and yeah, I have no idea how much these, I know how much like some of the budgets for some of the films are. I know that porn productions, there were some porn, a friend of mine was making porn movies about a decade ago for like 10 grand for the entire budget, which I don't even, I don't know how you would make a mainstream movie for 10 grand, but you could do it for porn. And <laughs> yeah, because it was like, you know, we, we got to do it cheap. Um, I, yeah, I think Nina's, Nina would know better than I, uh, but her estimate sounds about right. I mean, people were definitely rich, but, you know, well, not, not to the extent that, that rumors would have okay. it. I think we will dive into the actual making of the content when we get back from a commercial break, which we're heading to now. But for now, I, we, we, we can we can cogitate on 10 grand means you're either making porn or, I guess, clerks. We're talking with Lux Albtraum, expert on sexuality, technology, and enter, adult entertainment about, well, porn. If you have questions, tweet them to us at bizdisrupted or email them to comments at disrupted.business. We're going to take a short break for some messages from our sponsors. Stick around and we'll be right back. Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. 
Gavin Solmanese is the experienced leader for complex financial matters, restructuring, and litigation consulting. Whatever your situation, we have the ability and know-how to restore troubled companies to profitability and growth. We've successfully completed financial advisory engagements for hundreds of companies that have gone on to renewed health and success. No matter the size or complexity of the case, our clients always work directly with senior professionals and receive exceptional work product. We know that asking the right questions is always the first step in defining the true problem. Generating alternative solutions and finding a clear path forward is what we do. To us, it's all about results. What you do next is what counts. When there are tough decisions and hard choices to make, you need smart, strategic people beside you. Choose the team who never stops working until your problem, dispute, or financial crisis is resolved. Visit Gavin Solmanese at GavinSolmanese.com or call us at 302-655-8997. We hear it and read about it every day in the news. America is heading over a fiscal cliff. Home prices are still receding and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. You are listening to Business Disrupted. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to contact at disrupted.business. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. If you have questions, tweet them to us at bizdisrupted or email them to comments at disrupted.business. We're talking about the business of adult entertainment with Lux Alptrom, author and host of the podcast Tabloid. Lux, before the uh, before the break, we were talking about the studios and uh, and and how they arose and and cratered. Who are the consumers in in today's adult entertainment market? So that's also that's also a hard one to answer because you know. How do you get consumer demographic data? You do a survey, right? Like who's going to answer a survey being like, let me tell you about all the porn I watch. <laughs> um, I, I think that it is a lot of people think it's only men. I think that's not true. The most recent estimates I've seen suggested that it was probably about 25% women, um, 75% men. It might be even higher now. Um, I think, but I think it's, yeah, it, it's just hard to say. Like, I think everything that people think is often disproven. I know certainly in the like VHS, DVD era, major consumers um, were often in red states. Like you'd often actually even into the internet era, really. Like people think like, oh, blue states must love porn. But actually you often see a lot of consumption in more conservative states, which could be just the liberal people there, or it could be that people whose politics are kind of repressive maybe seek out sexual media. Um, definitely, for, for I much think... The, much the same reason that, and, and this may be apocryphal as well, but there is yeah. sort of an urban accepted fact that, um, that, that gay sex workers make bank 
around the conservative political action conference yeah. in Washington, D.C. every year. It would not surprise me. Um, but yeah, but, you know, I mean, I heard this like 15 years ago. I was hearing like, oh, like red states, like there's a ton of gay porn consumption, which I mean, you could certainly understand if you are a gay man in a conservative state. Even if you're not conservative yourself, you probably don't have as many outlets as people in more gay friendly cities. But no, but I remember like when when DVDs were kind of dying off like about a decade ago, I talked to somebody who worked for a DVD business and he was just like, no, no, no. There are people who are still buying them. They're in flyover states. Like He's like, it's not the people on the coasts. They're all on the internet. They're all pirating porn. But in the middle of the country, like we still get people who ask for paper catalogs. We still get people who want to buy DVDs, who want to buy VHS even. Like it's, and so that's another reason why it's like complicated because it's like, okay, what porn being consumed? Are we talking about, are we talking about internet porn? Are we talking about magazines? Are we talking about the physical media? Like, I think, I think there's this idea that there's only one way to consume porn and it's the newest way and everybody does it that way. And if you're not yeah. doing it that way, then you're not consuming porn. But I think, you know, a lot of people hold on to the porn uh, consumption habits of their youth, perhaps. Uh, and I think, yeah, I think that not everybody is on the internet consuming porn. And it's, yeah, I just think it's, it's a much more complicated question than we realize. I do think, though, that it often skews more male in part because of just who is making the content and who the content is intended to appeal to. Um, But I think there's definitely an increase of women in consuming porn. And I think especially as we see the rise of more like performer, direct performer to consumer content, like OnlyFans, you definitely see more women consuming it um, either because they feel like it's being made in a more intimate way or they just like that it's like oh it's just me and the performer or because we're getting a more diverse range of performers who are uh creating content Mm -hmm. and so like you know maybe we're seeing like more men and so straight women who wanted to see men perform are now like oh there's finally something for me uh because it's now cheap to produce content so it's very easy to just test stuff out and see where it goes whereas like in one of the limitations of the studio system is if you wanted to make a quote unquote movie for women. I don't think women are a monolith. I think women like all different things, but you know, the stereotypical, like a movie for straight women. So it's kind of like a movie for straight men, but it's got more plot and there's more focus on the men. If you wanted to make that, it would cost a lot of money. Um, at, at least 10,000 probably, right. but you know, it would cost like, it would cost a significant amount of money. Then you would have to market it. If you didn't know how to market it, which you probably didn't, if you had never marketed it to women, uh, then you would pretty quickly be like, well, this is a failure. Women don't buy porn because maybe you're not making the movie in the way that they want it to be made. Maybe you're not selling it to them in the way that is appealing to them. Maybe it's just not being marketed. Maybe it's not being sold in places where they're going. But it's very easy to just be like, this is a expensive investment that's not worth making. Whereas if your investment is, I'm going to record a five minute video and upload it to the internet, that's not a huge investment. And the pay- it's easier to experiment and it's easier to see what the payoff is and kind of get playful with your marketing and try to reach new audiences. So in, in, in terms of how availability of, of media has affected the performers and, and yeah. provided for a one-to-one relationship between the, the performer and the audience versus the studio. 
um, Casey Calvert, who's a performer, remarked in an article that in 2011, uh, she was hired to do a digital playground production, digital playground being one of the ginormous producers. Mm-hmm. And and she she said this was one of the biggest companies in the business. It was a huge production. There were two makeup artists. There was a hairdresser. We had a wardrobe. There was a cook. And then in 2018, she was hired for a digital playground production, and she had to do her own makeup. She had to bring her own clothes. The director went out for fast food at the end of the day. And, and that <laughs> sort of encapsulates the change in the amount of money available for a production between 2011 and 2018. And as a result, the compensation for the performers plummeted as well. And so they turned to avenues like having their own website or OnlyFans or other avenues to be able to monetize their their fan relationship because the studio wasn't doing it anymore. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting because one of the things that happened in between those two time periods is Digital Playground got acquired by Pornhub. Um, I mean, they would probably have gone out of business had they not. But I think it's sort of interesting to see like the attitude of the independent studio and the attitude of the Pornhub owned studio. Those are very different companies. Um, But yeah, I mean, so it's interesting because 20 years ago, you had a lot of porn performers who were making their own websites because they didn't want to move to LA or, you know, and you do see this with OnlyFans as well. There were people who, for whatever reason, could not, work a traditional nine to five job. Um, some of the first cam girls that I met, and this is a very different era of camming about 20 years ago. Uh, one had chronic pain issues. Uh, one had really severe endometriosis. As a result, they just could not commit like because they or their health might just act up on them. Whereas if they were running their own porn site, their schedule was incredibly flexible. Uh, they, yeah, they could make a lot of money. They could dictate their own hours. It was much, much easier for them. But they were two people who uh, probably would not have been a good fit for the Hollywood porn system. Uh, you know, they didn't have quite the right look. They might not have been able to, they might, they like they wanted to move to California. But internet porn allowed them to create their own websites and make a decent living for at least a little bit. I think it would have collapsed at some point uh, just because of the way the industry went. Um, so, so that was one reason why I was like people 20 years ago were making their own websites because they wanted to do porn for whatever reason and the traditional studio system wasn't working for them. And so it's kind of funny to see 20 years later, people being like, well, I'm going to do an OnlyFans because I want to make porn. Maybe I have been making porn. Maybe I'm new to porn and the traditional studio system is not working for me. But again, with OnlyFans, it's a lot easier than making your own website because a lot of the back end already dealt for you with for you. So all you have to do is make your own content. And I think... I mean, it's, it is really intriguing to see um, these big name stars, to see Casey Calvert, to see Lena the Plug, to see people who kind of have made careers in the traditional studio system now switching to doing their own OnlyFans. But it also does kind of skew our perception of how OnlyFans works and who OnlyFans works for, because what you're seeing now is a lot of people who had a marketing team build up their identity, build them up, uh, build up their career, build up their brand. So they're very well known because they were in these big porn movies that other people were hyping. And when you're kind of at that level and then you go to OnlyFans, 
you can often make a lot of money that way because you're a known quantity. People want your stuff. And now the money is just going directly to you. Whereas if I am somebody who just can't pay my rent and I go on to OnlyFans, nobody knows who I am. They might not care about me. Like the fact that I'm just putting up topless pictures doesn't mean I'm going to make $100,000 a month. Like those kinds of numbers are really for people who are starting at this high level of already being a brand. And I, I mean, I think that, that's not even just sex work. I mean, I think it's funny. I, I remember there was a period where Louis C.K. started doing like direct to consumer, like buy my whatever show, I'm going to sell tickets to this thing. And he was like making tons of money and people were like, see, like you don't need the middleman. But it's like, if I went and did that, nobody's, I'm not going to make right. $250,000. Like you have to be, you kind of benefit from being a known brand that somebody else has invested money and marketing into and then going independent more than you do just going independent from the get-go. One of the things you wrote about many years ago um, was how, uh, how Tumblr presented some transactional risks for Yahoo when they bought it <laughs> because there were adult Tumblrs and Yahoo would, have, would get a lot of pressure to not have that content on their network. So what happens when someone forks over, you know, seven billion dollars for OnlyFans? Well, I do want to say I was right. Uh, Tumblr became less adult friendly. Got bought by Verizon at some point, and eventually just kind of banned adult content. And that is actually the big fear that a lot of sex workers have for OnlyFans. Like you see a lot of discussions where there have just been like early signs like, oh, OnlyFans wants to take investment. OnlyFans wants to do this. And sex workers are like, this always happens. We build up the platform. Then the platform goes mainstream and we get kicked to the curb. Um, And I think that's a reasonable concern with OnlyFans because like if OnlyFans ever wants to be in the app store, they cannot have adult content. Uh, If OnlyFans wants to appeal to mainstream people, they're not going to be able to be um, an adult site. Like it's, it's, it doesn't really work that way. And a lot of companies would rather choose mainstream investment over adult content, even if, you know, like Tumblr, that maybe is not the best, uh, maybe not the best bet in the long run, but in the short term, it feels like, oh, you got these investors, they're promising all this cash. They're telling you how you're going to be big, 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 big. And so it seems like it makes sense. But what is OnlyFans if it doesn't have adult content? Like, do you really want to pay for videos of chefs? Like, do you really want to like, like, I remember when I first saw OnlyFans, which was uh, five or six years ago, I think they were advertising themselves as kind of just like a pay YouTube type thing. Like, oh, YouTube influencers like have a subscription here. It was kind of like Patreon, I guess, but a little bit more seamless. And I looked at it and I was like, immediately like, no, this is, this is clearly for sex workers in part because they were just taking a really high commission. And I was like, I don't understand why a YouTube talent would give up this much of their money if they could just go to Patreon and give up a lot less. Um, And, you know, yeah, OnlyFans became very appealing to sex workers because for them, it was a really competitive commission. If you've joined us late, we're talking with tabloid podcast host Lux Alptrom. If you have questions, tweet them to us at bizdisrupted or email them to comments at disrupted.business. Let's focus a little bit on the performers. Um, yes. 
how do I mean now how they get their start can come in any number of ways because if they're going through a producer, they have to get discovered, but they also have a laptop with a webcam and an internet connection. So going to the majority of what's out there, I guess, how does a performer get their start? What's the, what is the, what is the beginning of a career in adult entertainment? You know, I don't, I don't know that there's any one way. Um, a lot of it historically has come through connections and so you meet the person who knows the person and then you get into it. Like sometimes it's like you're a stripper and there's casting and you hear about it. Um, there have been ever since the invention of the internet though, like there have been people who built a name for themselves and then kind of crossed over. Like Joanna Angel got her start with her website that I believe she still runs, Burning Angel. And she built up a name for herself. And then other studios wanted to work with her because she had created a name for herself. Um, It wouldn't surprise me if people who get big enough on OnlyFans might find directors wanting to work with them. But it really is a lot. A lot of the people I know um, have come up kind of independently creating stuff on the internet, getting a name for themselves and then having directors want to work with them. Um, but I think, you know, a lot of times, yeah, you start with a smaller site and then you keep working and yeah, but I, but I don't know that there is any like one path, especially now that the industry, that the industry is so fractured. A lot of it is like, well, you maybe apply for a little site and you do something and then maybe you blow up and then you see where you go, or maybe you're creating amateur content and then somebody offers to pay you to be in their thing. When, when somebody is working for, for a producer that is not themselves, mm-hmm. how are they compensated? With money. Well, I mean, uh, yes, that, 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 no, I mean, that was, that was my fault. I, I, I doomed myself by the, by my own sentence construction. How are, what determines how performers are compensated? So, I will say a big thing that a lot of people don't know is that adult industry performers have never gotten royalties. So it's a huge, huge difference from actors in Hollywood and a lot of other mainstream entertainers. There's no royalty system. Uh, You don't have any kind of vested interest. You are paid a flat rate for your scene and then doesn't matter if it flops or is a huge success. Like you get the same amount of money. So that's a really different, a really different model. Um, And historically, it was kind of whatever because, yeah, you are getting a set amount, but you are often getting a decent amount of money and you were also booking a lot of work. So it kind of didn't matter, even though long term, maybe that wasn't the best. You didn't have any long term income plan. But at the moment, it's like, wow, like I'm getting fifteen hundred dollars every few days. Like, this is great. And it's for a couple hours of work. So in terms of like what determines how people are paid. I don't know what rates are now. I know that they are way lower than they used to be, but I haven't like kept my finger on the pulse of what exactly they are. But generally speaking, uh, female performers get paid more than male performers. Uh, male per- and this, this is in the quote-unquote straight industry. Um, in the gay industry where it's two men, it's obviously a little bit different. But speaking of the quote-unquote straight industry, which is the majority of what's made, um, men get paid lower per scene but historically are able to 
book more scenes because there are just fewer men who can be reliable performers. Um, it's just a much more difficult, it's a much more difficult job in some ways, um, just in terms of who is able to do it. Because mm-hmm. if your job is um, getting and maintaining an erection in front of a board film crew and then also having sex to completion, like that's already a, a really big challenge and not a lot of people can do it. Um, and do it reliably and be somebody that other performers want to work with. Like that's difficult. Um, and so once you're in the industry, you tend to be one of a small select crew where you just get a lot of work. So that has historically justified you being paid less. Also the idea that you're not the draw for the scene. So, um, that's one disparity. Then with female performers, a lot of it just depends on what the scene involves. So if you were like just doing nude photos, that would probably be the lowest rate. But then it's like, okay, uh, maybe you're doing just a blowjob scene or maybe you're doing a quote unquote girl girl scene. Those are a lower rate than if you're doing a scene that is penis and vagina sex. Uh, If you're doing a scene that involves anal, that is also more. If you're doing a scene that involves multiple partners, that gets you paid more. But there's also like, if you're a new girl, you might get paid more because it's your first scene. Or if it's the first time you're doing something, you might get paid more because then the studio can market it as like, this kind of novelty. Um, so those are, those are some of the factors. It's really what you're doing and then how much people think that they can market it for. So if you're a big name, you can command a higher price. If it's your first, again, first time doing something novel, that, that can change the price. But again, like I think when I was covering it regularly, it was pretty standard to get like $1,000 a scene just for a standard boy, girl, penis and vagina sex scene. And then I think like by a few years ago, that was down to 500. I don't know what it is now. But it, it's definitely gotten a lot lower, which and in addition to that, people have a harder time booking work because there used to be this huge glut of studios that were constantly producing content and you could maybe get work every day. But then it suddenly became like maybe you would get book, booked once a week or a couple times a month. Like that's not the major source of income for a lot of people. A lot of people will do the studio uh, scenes to make a name for themselves, but then do other work um, like full service sex work or stripping or having an OnlyFans to actually make their income that they're living off of. One of the things you mentioned uh, at the beginning of this specific discussion was lack of royalties and royalties yeah. for for the you know for the for the Hollywood set. Royalties came from the fact that that actors are represented by labor unions. Yep. There do there doesn't see is there any organized labor representing people in 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 the adult entertainment industry? So there are there are not unions in the traditional sense. There are organizations um, that have attempted to do advocacy for adult performers. There's the Free Speech Coalition, which is actually the industry kind of trade organization. Um, But there's also the Adult Performer Advocacy Committee, APAC. And they have, you know, I remember they got founded maybe like eight years ago and they were like putting together a lot of PSAs, putting together kind of intro packets for new talent to be like, this is what you should know about the industry. Here are classic pitfalls. Here's how to do this, how to do that. But in terms of traditional unions, um, 
adult industry, it's hard to have a union for the same reason that it's hard to have a freelance writer's union, which is that the performers are often very transient. People pop in and pop out of the industry. Uh, It's not really as stable a career in terms of like having a bunch of people who are always there doing the same thing um, as like Hollywood might be. I think also because it's stigmatized, it's just traditionally been difficult. Um, Also, most of the time when I know like digital media, as digital media started to unionize, they unionized through like the WGA and other large unions. Who's going to want to support porn performers unfortunately not a lot of people and and so it's it's very difficult to get porn performers it's also i mean the other thing is just as all of these studios as as the studio system fractures it's like well who are you negotiating with i mean at this point i guess maybe you're just negotiating with Pornhub, but historically it's just it's been hard because the performer base is not stable and steady and the employers, there's just so many of them that it's actually really difficult to, to form any kind of like collective bargaining relationship, which again, I think freelance writers are in a similar position where there's a lot of us, we dip in and out. Uh, we work for a lot of different organizations. It's very hard to say like, we're going to come together and who are we going to negotiate with? <laughs> you know, is it like, like, oh, okay, we'll negotiate with Condé Nast, but what if I'm writing for uh, Gawker or I'm writing for Hearst or I'm writing for whoever? Like, how are you going to get all of them to agree? Like, that, that's a difficult situation. Whereas, you know, something like SAG, there's a lot fewer studios. It's a lot more concrete. Um, it's a lot easier to make those negotiations happen. What are, what are some of the, the tropes that American society in particular has attached to porn that just don't hold up under examination? I mean, I think there's definitely an idea of porn performers as one specific type. Like you always hear like blonde hair, fake boobs, blah, blah, blah. That's not true. There are a lot of different porn performers. They look a lot of different ways. Um, Definitely there's an idea that porn performers are abused, are desperate, are uneducated. That is not necessarily true certainly um there are there are uneducated desperate people who have lived with uh abusive situations in all industries it's not i don't think it's any more the case in pornography um there are heavily educated porn performers there are porn performers who don't have formal education uh there are performers who look all different ways like it's not one specific type of person. And I think what people often don't understand is the most detrimental thing for porn performers is often not actually porn, but the stigma that mainstream society uh, subjects porn performers to, both when they're in the industry and when they choose to leave. Well, Lux, it's been a real privilege speaking with you. We are out of time. Lux Alptraum is a writer, speaker, and consultant, expert on sexuality, technology, and adult entertainment. She's the author of the book, Faking It, The Lies Women Tell About Sex and the Truths They Reveal. And you need to go and buy that book right now. And she's host of season two of the podcast, Tabloid. Lux is on Twitter at L-U-X-A-L-P-T-R-A-U-M. We'll post links to her and the Tabloid podcast's social media on our website in this episode's show notes. Business Disrupted is hosted by me, Ted Gaff. 
Gavin. Our executive producer is Robert Cellino. Our audio engineer is Aaron Keller. Our theme song and other original music are by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Branding by Peg Fitzpatrick and PMG Group. PR and social media by Carol Lunger, Emily Stern, and ABNC Creative. You can find episode guides, show notes, and sign up for our newsletter at our website at disrupted.business. Email your thoughts to contact at disrupted.business. You've been listening to Business Disrupted on Voice America Business and the World Talk Radio Network. Thank you for tuning in to Business Disrupted. Be sure to join Ted Gavin for another edition of the program and some more great stories next Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until we speak again, have a great week.